Hello, and welcome to the Always Already podcast. You're here today with Emily. And James. And John. And a text. (laughs) (laughs) Double, double, toil and trouble. Very, very witchy indeed. (laughs) Haven't haven't the three of us particularly talked about Sabrina the Teenage Witch on a podcast before, but not on this particular episode? 100%. We also promised to follow up with (laughs) a sort of after dark analysis of it, and we have not delivered on that as well. So I'm 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 innocent of this charge. Well, there was that the demonology episode, which is Ooh, an interesting yeah. connection. But John, there's another episode that we were really thinking was like a good segue for this episode. But now I'm remembering that there are two other, you know, two roadways by which listeners might arrive at this episode. Only two. So one, well, <laughs> many, many, yes, this is just like an infinitely yes recursive enfolding rhizome infinite regress (laughs) crystals of time that they could fall into oh Oh my god that episode if you pick up on that reference listener you've been around for a while and we appreciate you more than you know Speaking of, watch this, speaking of true fans, we're talking about, well, what are we talking about today? Emily James, Crandall. James Padalione Jr. <laughs> so, well, I, I started off there a little bit with um, Song of the Witches from Shakespeare's The Tempest, because the book that we read is Caliban and the Witch, uh, by uh, Caliban and the Witch, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation by Silvia Federici, uh, but Caliban being... Um, a character in Shakespeare's The Tempest um, gave me license there to get a little witchy. But we're going to get a lot witchy today, aren't we? Sure are. And that is all thanks to listener Jonathan Lowell, who suggested we read Federici. And you too, listener, can suggest texts for us to discuss and dreams to analyze. We haven't done that in a while, but also you should advice. still send us dreams and, or advice questions. Nobody wants our advice anymore. <laughs> Apparently, um, apparently, Although, like we gave all, we have all the advice we had to give out, like back in 2014 and 15. We gave such excellent advice that nobody needed any more. <laughs> Maybe we need to like ratchet it up from dream advice to divination and prophecy. You know? Ooh, okay. Let's 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 go to the occult arts and dreams. You're gonna have to take the lead on that. <laughs> I, I'm, I second Emily's suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the lead on that. But John, how about you take the lead on opening up this conversation? What a okay. great segue. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. Thank you very much. Um, so we, this was a listener request, but uh, one of the reasons I think that we ended up choosing this over the like literally dozens of texts that we need to get to at some point in our lives to discuss on air is that this is a, I think very much a follow-up and re-articulation and re-engagement with a lot of the questions that Sid and Rachel and I had been discussing in our Rosa Luxemburg series. Um, where that the series of, has been giving me life, by the way. I, oh, thank you. Yeah. 
um, where the question of, well, for, for Luxembourg, original accumulation, and then here for Federici, primitive accumulation, um, where both of them are kind of engaged in projects where they're trying to rethink Marx's concept of primitive accumulation and do so in a colonial context but ultimately end up doing so in very different ways. So like there's a lot of, I hope, echoes and resonances and James can give us the more occult uh, simile going on between this episode and those episodes. Wait, what is the more occult simile of resonances? Is it crystals? I don't know. Is it? (laughs) I'm asking genuinely. (laughs) The crystallizations. (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, So I think both of you in our prep for the show asked some really interesting questions about the way that Federici posits and develops her question and then the methods that she is using to engage that question. So does one of you kind of start us off by talking there? James, you do it. Okay. So I guess the, that question um, is right there in the title of the book in some way. And and that she's looking at the figure of the witch, um, and I guess like the, the, the quick summary of the book itself is that she's looking to see how capitalist accumulate primitive accumulation could be centered like a feminist analysis through a feminist analysis that is not starting from the premise of like the worker outside of the home, kind of, you know, having to contract with a boss. Um, and so the invisibilization of women's reproductive labor as a necessary source to provide bodies and, you know, biopolitical production for an emerging capitalist, um, you know, capitalist regime that's taking place between, the, we'll say, the 13th, 14th century beginning. I don't know that. I don't know exactly where she wants to start, but she's looking at the witch hunts specifically of like the 15th through 17th, maybe 18th centuries. But so then the question came up beforehand, if this idea of the figure of the witch that is part, like the need to corral the witch is part of the capitalist need to control women's reproductive labor so that there is an unlimited or at least a burgeoning supply of people, right? And so is that question about the witch a historical materialist witch, right? Or an ontologically historically materialist witch, I would put in there. Um, and maybe I can unpackage that in a second. Or is this figure of the witch a kind of metonym for a kind of social position maybe relative to capitalist patriarchy? Or both. A, a gendered one, specifically. Specifically gendered, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I also think uh, just by way of characterizing her overall argument, it's not just the invisible reproductive labor. It's in under the capitalist regime. It's she's specifically interested in the transition to capitalist and how the process by which reproductive labor became invisibilized and thus taken as sort of natural by Marxist Marx and Marxist scholars. Right. So it's sort of like, De, it's in that sense is a little bit of a meta analysis. It's like demystifying the the analysis that tries to demystify the things that got naturalized through the process of um, the transition to to capitalism, right? Yes. 
Yes. And so, Emily, to use your phrase, which you used in, in prepping for the show, is that it's kind of a is what you call it. I wrote this down because it was perfect. It's like a deep historicization of Marxist feminism. And then like and this, I like, didn't paraphrase word for word, but kind of trying to do to Marx what Marx does to capitalism. I think I said ways. Marxing Marx. <laughs> yes. There we go. Perfect. To Marx Marx. And uh, as I was going over my notes today, again, uh, what struck me was kind of the deeply historical materialist elements of this, where Federici is interested in changes in prices. She's interested Mm -hmm. in the credit market. She's interested in uh, profits and losses. She's interested in those very specific materialist questions. Yes. The actual wage, not the idea of the wage. Although she's also interested in the idea right. of the wage, although less than Marx is, much, much less than Marx is, actually. Yeah. Um, and so I, there's so there's like she grounds everything that follows in kind of this materialist analysis of there is this like century long economic crisis. And one of the possible outcomes and the outcome that ended up happening was the permanent accumulation of capital labor power and bodies so as to jumpstart or to launch a capitalist project. So but, there's that particular historical materialist dish moment. Wait, I think also importantly for her, the other outcome ethnographically and historically was something more like what Marx thought communism would be. And the reason the outcome that we saw come to fruition, came to fruition, was violently and and intentionally, right? As a project of cutting off the possibility of the thing that would have been more collective and more communal. Right. I think if if I'm um, hearing what you all are saying correctly, and it's referring to what I'm thinking, um, (laughs) so many caveats. (laughs) 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 Just talk. I I think there's this like maybe reductivist perception that feudalism, right, like trends to capitalism within Marxism in a way that almost necessarily and naturally there's something not maybe like positive, but like the capitalism is a necessary and produces a certain like a preconditional consciousness in a way that is like uh, not bad relative to feudalism. And that that is not necessary. And like to get historical in some way about how like feudalism could have transitioned into a communalism um, is a really interesting, like to go back to that moment, maybe these moments and, and, and like rethink them. Although there is a, what, (laughs) what we would say in history and people who do historicism, like this declension narrative that like posits a, like almost an I- more idealistic past mm. that like progressively gets worse as we get like more as it comes closer into view or something. I, it's you, interesting. Wait, you don't, do you think, I mean, I don't know. Do you think that Federici is guilty of that? Is that what, or are you just saying I, that's a, that's floating around here? I think that, <laughs> I think that she's doing a very broad, like I, Fernand Braudel cited several times. So broad in a B-R-O <laughs> in, my, in my like Philly accent, broad in a Braudelian way too. That like you're you're so necess- like the level of analysis, like the 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 dimension at which you are na- analyzing patterns and like social formations is so broad that 
you are necessarily like not able to to get into the nitty gritty. But I think sometimes getting into like extreme granular nitty gritty is part of the kind of the epistemological violence of colonialism itself. Right. That like to be able to say something in a broad sweeping way is polemically important. That's especially true with the point I think that Emily made. And so I'm reading, this is page 61. The development of capitalism was not the only possible response to the crisis of feudal power. Throughout Europe, vast communalistic social movements and rebellions against feudalism had offered the promise of a new egalitarian society built on social equality and cooperation. So the the not the contingency, the non-inevitability of capitalism in that broad sweeping uh, historical mode that James identifies is central to her, and I would say is one of those resonances with Luxembourg. Mm. I'm just now, I wasn't thinking about this in prep, but I'm, now as we're getting into it, I'm thinking about the importance you places on the role of violence as a key like mechanism to maintain a regime that has then sort of been the, in retrospect been theorized as natural, right? The thing argument yeah. you were making James that like, I think that's one of her interventions as well to sort of call attention historically to the fact that like, when you gloss over this narrative and tell it as the sort of natural rise of feudalism and that it was a sort of, revolution in consciousness that was required for something like fully automated, you know, cap- communism or something that like it misses what you miss there in that analysis or that gloss is the key um, role that violence played in sort of maintaining or creating the structures that facilitated that transformation of consciousness to begin with, if there even was one. <laughs> Should we talk about some of the processes that are involved then in this non-inevitable violent transition? <laughs> sure. Well, I guess do we do we want to start, it's like starting with the kind of like the the narrative account with why it is that there is a population crisis in Europe? Is that right? Am I reading this right? Do you mean like walk through that that historical argument? Because I think there's a bit of a. Like, obviously, every story, wherever you start, has another, like, pre-beginning. But I'm still trying to, like, are, is it a given that we all, like, it's known that there was a, I I guess, okay, maybe I just, maybe I'm asking this out loud, right? I'm hearing myself not quite have these thoughts framed out. Is she saying that the way populations, like, this was a productive overpopulation on purpose, and part of that was like enclosure and part of that was controlling women's reproductive rights so that we are deliberately producing a surplus population. So you can get surplus value out of them. Like, you know what I mean? In like the first round of this. Okay, wait. So are you asking whether her argument is that it was an intentional Right, I'm trying like, to like pop, you know, it, popula- like a pre-Foucauldian sort of biopolitics situation, or like is this emergent or is this an actual strategy? Mm. Because I'm 
like the which one is coming first? Because it's I, I don't want to. Um, well, I so I read her, her argument that she's looking for the answer, maybe. But right. like, that's I think it is there. I think it is there. But I just don't. You know, like this is what I mean. I guess let me get right to it. I read this <laughs> thinking beat to myself, the bush, James. I know. I don't know. This, <laughs> I read through this and I like the argument, but I'm like, I want to get to the point where I don't have to cite anything and I can just assert things. And because like my status as a scholar is what it is, I guess, that people just like, I don't, like, there are so many things that I was like, I feel like I would have put a footnote on that, and she just says it and keeps it moving. Mm. When okay. she's setting up these, like, accounts. But, okay, so I think maybe we're back at square one with John's sort of original question, or John's original invocation to our questions, which, which is that I, I don't think what she's trying to do is to tell the definitive history of the transition from feudalism to capitalism. I think she's inviting us, a broad kind of audience of scholars who are interested in, you know, violence and domination under the capitalist regime to imagine how the story looks different when you take a different starting point. And if you think about if the narrative is that population growth is inevitable and natural, then like, how does that change the story? If it emerges as a strategy rather than as um, a, a sort of like biological determinant. Right. I think I, right? So I it's not settling. Question? It's not settling the question. It's posing the question. If that I makes think sense. I realize where I might be a little confused. Is that like one of the first postulates of Marx's own account? Like, why is she starting with that question? That's what I'm like. Is that because she's following after Marx? And there's this idea within Marxism of a surplus population being there for the first round of primitive accumulation. So I don't see the primitive accumulation question as a question of surplus at the beginning, either in Marx or in Federici. Obviously, the goal is to eventually create surplus, uh, surplus labor power from which one can derive surplus value, right? But in some ways, I read both Marx and Federici is trying to ask, what are the conditions of possibility for that eventual construction of a capitalist economy through which uh, one can derive surplus value from surplus labor? And the place then that I see Federici going, and this is, speaks to, I think, what Emily was just saying, is that you know she says quite explicitly, um, I don't know, maybe like 65-ish, 62, 63, 64, um, is where that Marx is telling the story of primitive accumulation from the standpoint of the eventual waged factory worker who is a man, right. which Marx isn't necessarily paying attention to. And what Federici wants to do is tell or narrate primitive accumulation and explicate primitive accumulation from the standpoint of women of colonized peoples and colonized women in particular and see the the ways in which they are also part of the process of primitive accumulation. So there's, I think, both a kind of meta-theoretical or meta-historical materialist point, which is what is the standpoint from which we theorize primitive accumulation? And then there is... Um, also, I forgot the other dimension of what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I do think 
I, but I do think she's interested in talking about how population growth specifically historically plays in to that, right? Cause there's this sort of narrative that like population growth is a sort of outcome of the need for the derivation of surplus value, but she's telling a different sort of historical narrative, which is that like, that like the demand for population growth has other roots that are not necessarily linked to the explicit transition from feudalism to capitalism in the way that we sort of traditionally think of it. Is there, are there any, um, I'm trying to see like if there's some quotes from this first chapter that we could like pull Short out. Um, so on, on what part James, cause I'm thinking, I'm like, and now I'm, I'm kind of deep in like the historic, the historical economic analysis that <laughs> sets up her narrative of, uh, of accumulation. So like, I'm, so let's, so I'm looking at 62, right. Uh, where she's talking about the kind of end and the crisis of the late mid, late medieval feudal economy. And she talks about um, kind of this like disaccumulation or accumulation crisis that she situates from 1350 to 1500 in Europe. Um, and mm-hmm. that it is that from that crisis where so middle of 62, quote, the feudal economy cannot reproduce itself, nor could a capitalist society have, quote unquote, evolved from it. Right. For self-sufficiency and seeing the new high wage regime allowed for the wealth of people, but excluded the possibility of capitalistic wealth, end quote. And that was Marx at the end. It, then this is back to Federici. It was in response to this crisis that the European ruling class launched the global offensive in the course of at least three centuries was to change the history of the planet, laying the foundations of a capitalist world system and its relentless attempts to appropriate new sources of wealth, expand its economic basis and bring new workers under its command, end quote. And I think like her and Marx are in more or less agreement there. Although she will, I think, does a little more to like flesh out the economic conditions in like 14th, 15th, 16th centuries a little bit in some ways than Marx does. Well, and, and the relationship of that to colonialism. Precisely. Yeah. So, and then it's from right. there that she goes and she's like, so Marx and I are kind of at the same point here. And it's like, now I'm going to tell a, a different, fuller, although I think we maybe all agree that there are still problems with her narrative of colonialism, and then specifically the kind of uh, the various socioeconomic transformations and violence against women mm-hmm. in this period of permanent accumulation. I'm okay with this, though. Like, you know what I mean? As far as I feel like this is one of those things where breaking it down, like the way she breaks down the account and, you know, is better maybe for the listeners. Versus just like going to like the parts of it that we like maybe. And, and so for me, it's this, better for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Cause I think there's, I know like, I'm still hung I'm up okay. on population. I'm like, wait, <laughs> I'm yeah. okay with her account. I think up to this point, I think I've heard, I have to check these footnotes, but I've heard some people even make the claim about the, the bubonic plague making a shortage of workers. So that way workers could demand more wages. So like there might be right. like, I'm tr- there's something really historical about this. Like, there are not enough people. And so everybody's like labor value is like, they know they can demand better treatment and whatnot and whatnot. And so there needs to be some fascist, proto-fascist, right? I'm using that word now because I'm thinking about abortion laws in our own country. But, right. but there is a, a actual kind of thought process that goes through, you know, like a patriarchal leadership 
that maybe is not thinking about capitalism as the end game, but like there is something that necessitates them to want to produce a surplus population. Right. And witches are, you know, and this is where I think like, I don't know if she meant it, but like she gets into a lot of stuff here that I like, I think she might mean it because she's citing Carlo Ginsburg um, and a lot of his work on the inquisition and um, witchcraft in Italy and Ma- like as an Italian um, intellectual historian, Carlo Ginsburg based all of his stuff on witchcraft, basically. And so, like, she's following that. And I think that's not for an accident because there's something very specific about what witches represent as far as, like, knowledge of procreative dynamics that men do not have access to. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not metaphorical. You know what I mean? And not right. even to say... Like having children and like there is let me just bracket this in real quick there is a kind of obstetric focus of this text that you know there like the critique would say well what would a queer trans approach to this be because mm-hmm. yeah not all women have children not all women have wombs some men have babies today so we would need to like adjust for that maybe too but that's not a metaphor to say that even if we're saying capitalism over essentializes this and creates a stable biological idea of woman, then this is part of, I think, like this account. I don't know if she realizes how radical it really might actually be. That's what oh, I, I think I, she does. <laughs> I, I, it, 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 the figure of the witch, like, you know, to follow the witch's flight, as the losing Guatari mm-hmm. say. And, as Sarah Sorry. Keeling says. Yeah, right. We did an episode on that. <laughs> that. But that's like metaphorical, right? Because like Sarah so Keeling's archive doesn't actually deal with real witches. And I would right. say actually followed the witch's flight through re- like black witches during the 17th century. African women who are caught up in this, like that is ground zero for all of the conversation. And I don't want to just go right there. Wait, so but, I have a, you know, right there. I have a question for you. So do you this think this is a material conversation that like, if you look at it there, you see it all. And then what happens to white women and their witchcraft is like part and parcel, but like the slippage between where she says that white women on page 13, quote unquote, in ways similar to slavery, the way women's work, women, women's reproductive labor becomes controlled by capital interests that it's like, right. And like, that's part of the, the danger that we had talked about as far as like mm-hmm. allegory, I guess, or right. Right. But yeah. the actual kind of, you know, for another, uh, or another episode that we've talked about, um, Another episode that we've done, the Gramsci's Black Marks. <laughs> so much that, plugging of our own shit. <laughs> but like, right? I I'm pro like, that. Yeah. Get this all out because then I'm, I won't feel like I need to say anything anymore, other than just like throwing in some fun stuff. But like, if we're gonna really think about, and I'm not. This is not a critique of Federici. This was published in 2004, so like some of this stuff comes after this book, right? But to think about women and their reproductive labor needing to be like decommodified in some way or like not made into labor that is visible and then also controlled and that the people who have literal like meta like the the material means to stop pregnancies or not have to get like we have to do away with them in some kind of way but like the this relationship here, I'm totally losing my train of thought, but I think like focusing this 
because black women taking like a spillers approach to black flesh and like not having even gender Mm -hmm. as as women in transatlantic slavery what does it mean for like a black woman's womb to become the site of commodification that is like doing the same work in the colonies that a witch in Europe is all, you know what I mean? Like to think them, really think them together is very generative. And I, so I, I really like what Federici's doing, but I think there's a lot more that could be done. Can I try to maybe posit a question and reframe what you're saying? Are yes. You, okay. Are you, are you saying that it, that there's a difference between tracking those who hunted witches and why they hunt ostensibly hunted them and tracking witchcraft itself and like the challenge that the craft posed to the transition to the capitalist regime. I, so I think, I guess there's two things that I want to or say. No, or you're talking about the difference between thinking about this story in the colonies and in the slave trade versus in medieval Europe. I guess, okay, I I think I can break it down this way, right? The idea of the witch up until a certain historical moment and maybe all moments at different parts of the world, but like to really keep to the account, up until a certain historical time in the West and in Europe, witches were real. They weren't figures. They were real, right? And so... What do you mean were? (laughs) Right. But this, and like... That like what makes the witches real in the sense that they become a real target to capitalism is their herbalist knowledges Mm -hmm. because they can help abort babies. And as I'll give you a little bit later, they also can produce erotic pleasure for women that has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with men at all. And it's all in the herbalism. Right. And so that's one piece that I think you could really sit there and think about what. Real witches, not like the way the Catholic Church would have you think that a witch is like cavorting with the devil and like, oh, now that in a scientific paradigm, we've moved beyond that. Like, no, the proto science that the witches were wielding is real in a real way. So, like, that's one piece. The second piece is this whole account, which she does gesture to in like the colonialism chapter, and she talks about, she quotes Marx on the page 63, where Marx is talking about slavery being part of primitive accumulation. She's but then she wants Marx's account, though, right? But she's critical of it, right? Yes, and you know because he doesn't actually think about reproductive labor as part of that slavery accumulation. Mm-hmm. But I don't think her mistake here in that regard, and it's not necessarily a critique that she. Well, Spillers had already been around up until this point, right? But and Spillers is not cited. I did check. Yeah, that that the the reproductive labor that Black women are subject to is not exploitative in a Marxist exploitation sense, right? And like that on the Afro pessimist critique, there's something else here that is not about capital production mm-hmm. that is happening to Black women. At the same time, it is ground zero for capital production, and that paradox is enriched, I think, by her account as well. But now here's the last thing I'll say, and then I'll give it to you. The worry to bring this all together is to, and she mentions like a, a witch in Barbados in 18th century who was the last one killed in Western polities 
um, because she was accused of poisoning her master. I was looking up accounts of witches who were not only accused of poisoning masters, but of performing abortions and killing children with their poisons for enslaved women who did not want their children to be alive anymore. So I like the way all this comes together, right, I think would be to ask the question, like, what are black witches doing when they're both in and out of capital? Mm -hmm. Like in a, in a weirdly ontological way, because there's something in the ontology of a witch that is just as unique, I think, as like the ontology of a black person relative to a white proletarian worker. Like the ontology of a witch is distinct too. And I, like all of those ontologies mean real things as far as like the historical appreciation or lack of appreciation for them. Can I just say really quick aside? I, on, while we're talking about page 63, one of the notes that I wrote on her second point there where she talks about the, um, process of the expropriation of European workers from their means of subsistence and the enslavement of Native Americans and Africans to the minds and pledges of the new world. Um, her second point is that this process required the transformation of the body into a work machine and the subjugation of women to the reproduction of the workforce. And most of all, it required the destruction of the power of women, which in Europe, as in America, was achieved through the extermination of the witches. My marginal note was like, this is more than labor power, right? <laughs> which, which is, I think, right. to the point you were just making. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. If we just, it's like if we would, like if it's, and I'm not saying that she's servicing it in quite that way, right? Yeah. But like if it just gets folded into a an account of like labor exploitation, then we're missing something in the rich, the right. richness of like what made a witch distinctive. <laughs> That's not just any other kind of like exploited or like not any other kind of subject position within this like realm of potential exploitation or not. So, so do you think that that's something that this text is missing or do you think it's something the text is gesturing toward or something else? I, does, I don't know if John, I guess that's for me. I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, so, okay, well, I'm going to answer your question with a question, Emily. Oh, very uh, clever. To put, it, <laughs> to put it very, like, bluntly, directly back at all of you. And that is, like, I think that this, this, this discussion, this arc of saying that it is much more than just the accumulation and exploitation of labor power is precisely right. So in the text, do we think that Federici understands it is just about labor power or does she even if it's in glimpses hint at the ontological excess of the position of the witch generally or the position specifically of the black witch as you put it james and of course what? this is then this is like a way of reworking kind of the place where we started where there's the question of how much is this uh specific and concrete historical materialist analysis and to what extent is the figure of the witch working as metaphor or metonym <laughs> we're taking our sweet sweet time with that question <laughs> uh, hey, that's okay this is what we do the listeners are used to it <laughs> so okay in the chapter of the great caliban which we said that we weren't going to read but then i kind of looked into it anyway because i was curious about some things um that chapter she there's a because there's a piece of this that the other side of the witch is like not just the abortive fashion producer, but the idea of the witch's 
and the witch's Sabbath, like she mentions Eros and that Eros in the medieval period was associated with high magic and with alchemy because Eros was sympathetic magic, you know, Mm. and that like that, the erotic, the power of the erotic was magic, but like out men who practiced alchemy, their high magic, like they never, there were never alchemical witch trials. You know what I'm saying? Like that was happening at the same time in the world, but men's alchemical studies, like Isaac Newton was a damn alchemist. And that's like perfectly fine. Queen Elizabeth the first had some witch man, dude, like diviner in her court and whatever. Like, but he's cool too. Right. It's like when a woman does this, and it's not connected to like some some other bigger structure then like she becomes a target and but like so the eros piece of magic that alchemists would dip into is criminalized in a way like right through witchcraft and so she talks about the witches sabbaths that would be the gatherings in the woods where witches would quote unquote as far as the right the inquisition would say like cavort with the devil and all these things right and riding on broomsticks and all those popular associations. Um, I guess I'm just going to give the piece that I was thinking before that I wanted to add to this. Cause like I do, again, I think like she's hitting on some things that might be more like more potent in some ways than maybe she even realizes, but bear with me on this. I have a little account to share with you of a, so um, the book, so what is it? Hallucinogens and shamanism by Michael Harner published in 1973 um there's a chapter on it that looks at witches and their the witches ointments that show up in these inquisition accounts and like the plants that they're using and the argument that michael harner makes is that the 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 idea of witches riding on the broomstick is that they're making these ointments from like alkaloid substances from plants and and then like you have to put it in a fat base in order for the alkaloid to be absorbed into the the bloodstream and then you rub the ointment on the mucous membranes of the body usually under the arm or in the groin because you can cross the blood brain barrier the quickest there and so these there are paintings from the 17th century of like witches sabbaths where witches are like slabbing each other down with like what looks like butter and stuff these (laughs) you would put this on a distaff or a broom and you would rub it like clitoral stimulation and not only then are you producing clitoral orgasmic right erotic pleasure but your trip is going to start to set in after a while too. And so there's a physician named Andres Laguna in 1545 who worked for Pope Julius III, who was in France in Lorraine, uh, like out in Alsace-Lorraine in France, and has this little account of uh, a witch's raid that he was part of, right? So, okay. Among the other things, this is his account among the other things found in the hermitage of the said witches was <laughs> a jar bless you was a jar half filled with a certain green unguent um i'm gonna skip some stuff out but he's going through the smell of it and it, identifying it as a cold soporiferous um substance that has hemlock nightshade, henbane mandrake in it um i managed to obtain a good canister full 
which later in the city of Metz, I used to anoint from head to toe the wife of the hangman, who, because of suspicions about her husband, was totally unable to sleep and tossed and turned almost half mad. And this one seemed to be an appropriate subject on whom some test could be made since infinite other remedies had been tried in vain. And since it appeared to me that this ointment was highly appropriate, and could not help but be useful. On being anointed, she suddenly slept such a profound sleep with her eyes open like a rabbit that I could not imagine how to wake her up. But every means possible with strong ligatures <laughs> rubbing her extremities, with effusions of oil and costas root, with fumes and smoke in her nostrils, and finally with cupping glasses, I so hurried her that at the end of 36 hours, she regained her senses and memory. Although the first words she spoke were, why do you wake me at such an inopportune time? I was surrounded by all the pleasures and delights of this world. And casting her eyes on her husband, she said to him, smiling, knavish one, know that I have made you a cuckold and with a lover younger and better than you. And she said many other very strange things, right? So... When I was reading this Federici account, this like Laguna report that I had already dealt with before in my past, but like it came back to me that like, why would he think that this woman who like was having anxious, like nervous disorders because she knew her husband was cheating on her? Like what made him think to give her the witch ointment that they raided from an Inquisition raid? And then what about that ointment? is like real in some like metaphysical way that as soon as she comes out of that trip, she's telling her husband that she like basically like sexually cheated on him in like a sacred cosmic way. Like I don't, that is real in a way that's maybe even bigger than Federici thinks bigger than like just a reductive, like capitalist, logical, rational explanation for why these witches had to go. They were dipping in to forms of erotic feminist, like clitoral centric, non-reproductive lesbian, like politically lesbian practices. Not only are they producing abortions, but they're also producing literal ecstatic orgasms. Like they wield a cosmic power that I don't think like to really appreciate that is to, to like, we cannot reduce what witches are to something else. I don't think I'm very and torn. I, think, I, I think there's a doing that. I don't think she's doing that, but I don't think but there's a part of me that thinks that that fits into her narrative actually. Right. I mean, the point you made about alchemy of, of the male chemical variety sort of not falling under the purview of what counts as witchcraft, I think is, is exactly her point, right? That like anything that was related to women's, uh, desire, pleasure, and or reproductive function was relegated to the realm of witchcraft and thus a, a seen as a threat to the, you know, pending capitalist order and that everything else got called science, right? Got sort of like co-opted or, or taken up in the, that transition. And I, I, so, so maybe like the story you're telling doesn't, and maybe it supplant or not supplants, but like infuses her, her account with like a bit more, I don't know, ma- magic. <laughs> right. No. And I think, I don't think that she, sorry, I just sneezed like not- a thousand times. <laughs> I need to mute my mic. <laughs> I, I think, 
You're fine. You're, maybe there's something magical in your nose or something. But um, it was while you were talking, I was just like, "That's you." Surely, surely we be saying, "God bless you," because you know you're sneezing and your soul might fly away, Should, Emily. Um, shouldn't we? I mean, that's long gone. There's no. <laughs> but uh, I only the only reason I include that account is to maybe like buttress her argument in some way. Yeah. By actually sitting with the like what is ontological about the witch that is real power and not just another metaphor for social power again or some other form of politics like because i like i guess this is like the religious studies way to do what she did would be to sit with like the actual forms of power being wielded and really think about what that means for the idea of metaphysical power, whether it is expressed politically, whether it is expressed magically, whether it is expressed socially, right? She's not necessarily doing that. But this is just like... I think she's gesturing toward it, though. She's gesturing towards it, right. In a way, though, that would then make her account unable to... Like, there is nothing else that's a witch hunt other than a real witch hunt. And if we want to talk about, like, Indian witch hunts happening now or witch hunts in West Africa today, yes, let's do that because neoliberal witch hunts are happening. But I don't think there are metaphorical neoliberal witch hunts unless there's real witches. And it's not a metaphor. Because no one else is really getting into the middle of reproductive justice on a real way unless you like and unless you want to say that like abortion doctors are like taking on the mantle of the witch again and in some way like the criminalization of abortion is it's a witch hunt is a witch hunt in the extent that you are literally trying to exterminate the the knowledge that produces life like on a cosmic level because we like what is conception is still very much open for debate. And I think even like this account to me in this, in this moment where we're seeing the, like, we don't know what the hell we're talking about as far as like a general public, like a political populace goes when we're talking about abortion, when we talk about right to life, when we talk about like personhood of fetuses and things Mm -hmm. like that. And all of these histories really do speak to this stuff in like, material ways and i think like there's such a power in what she did here even if that's not necessarily the focus of what she was doing if she was trying to do like a marxist account i appreciate that i'm like that's not my work right like so i'm reading for the way i would do this and i'm like i love what she did to really think about i mean you can put it back in a marxist frame if you want to but (laughs) and she and she tries to right it's like i'm thinking about pages 83, 84, and she talks about how one of the processes is the disciplining um, of collective sociality and sexuality in an attempt to, like, make eliminate leisure yeah. time or make it productive and productive for capital in some way, right? So, like, that's a place where she wants to do the Marxist materialist feminist reading of that, right. where, James, you would reorient that right towards this kind of the, towards the description of the encounter and practices that you identify or here's, right? I'm or, or like a metaphysical thing. ontological question I'm gonna, right. yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'm, can yeah. we do this whole thing and do the same materialist analysis but be new materialist about it and then I'm okay oh, snap. <laughs> that's all that's literally I guess where I'm trying to come at like can we be new materialist about this 
And now, like, the game is on again. Because I'm trying to, like, breathe inspiration into the struggle still, too. And I need the people to think that magic's possible because, like, I can't talk about the goddamn debates again. Oh, and that's <laughs> weight glass shattered. You know what I'm saying? Like, can I? If that's the only space of political hope, then goddamn. Can I? So tell I need you? witches to be real. <laughs> can I tell you guys the margin notes I made on page 84, John? Since you brought up that page, sure. <laughs> that um, the very last line of the page, uh, she says, along with this new social science in scare quotes, and so the prior paragraph basically describes like data data management essentially as kind of producing workers mm-hmm. and to an extent their exploitation through the process of privatization and i was like what do we make of this as a definition of social science is sort of like a snarky way <laughs> that's it that's just an aside <clears throat> so i i think there's kind of a meta question about federici that's like underlying the last 20, 30 minutes of this conversation. And I want to frame it through something she says at the very end of the book. So I'm looking on page 219, 220. Um, so actually not the end of the book, the last chapter. Um, well, which is the end of the book? There's no concluding chapter other than this. So this is the colonization and Christianization, Caliban and Witches in the New World chapter. And she opens that chapter by talking about uh, the similarities between witch hunts in Europe against white women, white European women, and then uh, the for, quote, forms of repression that had been developed in the old world were transported to the new world and then reimported into Europe. And so she's trying to draw these parallels between witch hunts in Europe, witch hunts in the colonies in the quote unquote new world. And she, he says the differences should not be underestimated, right? So she wants to say there are differences that should not be underestimated. And then a couple of sentences later, uh, the similarities in the treatments to which the populations of Europe and the Americas were subjected are sufficient to demonstrate the existence of one single logic governing the development of capitalism and the structural character of the atrocities perpetrated in the process. An outstanding example is the extension of the witch hunt to the American colonies, end quote. So that was 219 and 220. And it seems to me that if she wants to kind of sublate all of these differences back into this one single logic governing the development of capitalism, that that necessarily, perhaps, means that there's not room for the magic or there's not (laughs) room for the quote-unquote real witches or the materialist erotic new materialism of witches or the kind of excessive ontological position of black witches that that we were discussing (laughs) earlier. So there's Something about this kind of push and pull between the finer grained analysis or the openings or lines of flight from those fine grained material analyses that's pulling or pushing or whatever against this theoretical or meta theoretical point to bring it all back to this single underlying logic. And I have more to say about this single underlying logic thing. But I've spoken enough. So, what do you all think about kind of the turn to think of that in towards the end of the work? Uh, a of all, you have not spoken enough. <laughs> I this is really interesting. I mean, I think you've sort of loaded the question a little bit, right? Like, <laughs> oh no. Oh, <laughs> 
Because you would be denying the like the truthfulness of everything that we've talked about up to this point. Please. That we've already listened. No, I I was trying to load it the other way. But please reject my loadingness of the question, whichever way both of you see fit. No, you loaded it our way, right? (laughs) I feel like anyone who writes the phrase one single logic. Oh, it's just inviting. You know, like I hope sat there for Don't do it. (laughs) 15 seconds. Like, do I really want to say this? Was it 15 seconds? <laughs> oh, that's so, um, what were you going to say, Em? Nothing. I'm just talking shit. I just, I, <laughs> I, it's like this idea that capitalism has a governing logic, I think is really the premise that like, is capitalism fundamentally a rationalization of exploitation, of labor and efficiency and all that kind of stuff? Or is capitalism at some core libidinal? Right. And if it's libidinal, then like it's not being governed by any logics. They emerge and they are rationalized on the back end through language. Well, you I, know, I also, it's not an either or, though, right? I mean, that's kind of our answer. It's a both and. And I for, guess that's probably the that's the always already podcast position. A both and, yeah, <laughs> neither nor. Um, I I also think I'm, that actually her. Oh, if she says one single logic, I'm sorry, I'm like no, no, not no. to be like explicitly like she's right or wrong, but like if we're saying it's both and, she doesn't make room for both and this when she says one single. So what I was going to say is that I actually think her ethnographic historiography negates that one line, right? She's telling a story that refutes the the Marxist claim of one single logic and points to like multiple logics on multiple registers that only make sense in multiple historical contexts. And that they're right. Like, I mean, a deep oversimplification of the argument is like demystifying the process of, of like, capitalism's naturalization uh, right and so like um, to to I, I so i think like to demystify that logic vis-a-vis a re-examination of this kind of mystical the, the like historical materialist attempt to dampen this this thing we now think of as mystical is is a kind of like playfulness that defies her own claim that it's a single logic to, to an extent but maybe that's like a overly generous reading <laughs> i mean unless that's a very deridian deconstructionist <laughs> reading like the text is unwriting itself uh, i mean the process uh, of its writing uh, unless she's trying to be like i don't know like the one driving logic under all of it is like the the need for like animated materiality to work or something like in that regard then that's like, you know what I mean? Like there is an ontology at which one can get so abstract that like on some level, yes, like if there's no more human population, then like there is no capitalism. So like on like the very first premise, capitalism requires like people. Okay. In the beginning. But I'm not even, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. That was thinking though about uh, – like Donna Haraway a little bit in reading this because what does you know um, the figure of the cyborg mean right to get away from overly biologically centered ideas of women and reproduction and bodies and stuff um, 
you know, it, I think it does open up some questions, but yeah. Or even like the Shulamith Firestone approach to theorizing reproductive labor, right? That like, I mean, not, that's not a historical account. It's a different engagement with the same questions, but the idea that like reproduction itself is this, the center of hierarchy and domination and that, you know, well, but that buys into, I, I think, a little bit of the argument that Federici's trying to fight against, right? That, like, that the cap- the transition from feudalism to capitalism was sort of inevitable and required for what comes next, right? That sort of techno future, fully automated. I guess, right, like, thing. there's yeah. no need for capitalism. Like, yeah, right, right. I, it's hard to think about. I guess, like, we say, like, once, because she does cite, I guess, some of the the economic treatises that were floating around during like the mercantilist era that were talking about large populations as being the seed of wealth. So like you could, but like that's already too late and that's an ideological argument. That's not driven by material history in a way that wouldn't be a, like, I don't want to start with the ideology as expressed and attract and like try to be Marxist about that, but it's interesting. Why not? I don't, I don't, (laughs) Yeah. I don't know where else you could track it, though. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know at which point it's trackable because we're... In- I actually had a similar question. So, I mean, We're getting into the prehistorical parts where, like, record history records are not... Like, there's no citing anything. You know what I mean? Like, you got to right. be an ancient specialist and it's just... Or you're an archaeologist. And so I don't even know. I was trying to think, like, what, like, what were people doing during the... Like, right after Rome collapsed before feudalism, like, maybe, like, got into its zenith. Like what was ha- like? I don't even know, but like I want to know the. What were people up to back then? <laughs> it's so foggy. It gets so foggy. Well, I was actually thinking in that chapter, the concluding chapter that we read. Right, she makes the claim that witch hunting is a deliberate strategy to. I can't remember her exact phrasing, but it's like to instill terror in the like population that's trying to be made ready for the transition to capitalism, but also as a process, a strategy, a deliberate strategy of enclosure. Right. And I, I was like thinking is, is witch hunting just an example of a, of a, I don't know, a historical entity that fused those strategies together or is it the example, right? Is it like these only strategy that's, that's the sort of a historical linchpin to explain the kind of, confluence of, of those two things as a, as a way of, um, you know, concretizing or making possible that transition. Do you know what I mean? Is is it the, is it, is it an example or is it the example? I guess I want to, let me ask you this because I was thinking this as I was reading this to really try to apply it like at the most granular level, but like that she supplies are, are women's wombs being enclosed? Mm. Like was, and I don't want to, this, I don't even want to say this all the way out. Cause it sounds like I'm trying to say something. I'm not trying to be misogynistic, but was there a sort of public <laughs> commons? The right? Like, is there a, to that like patriarchy and like paternity is a privatization mm. of something that otherwise would have just been a commons. Like was paternity not as important? Like th- I don't even know. Right. That's how I was like, I don't know what the hell was going on in like the year 500, but like, did yeah. your, and men not give a fuck in the year 500? Like, is there a history to paternity that maybe is being uncovered here? I just don't know well enough to know. But, like, if enclosure really is uh, applying to, like, women themselves in this process, then, like, women are, like, the site of enclosure. 
at the point of their reproductive labor. I think it's not... But I think she wants to say that, like, the Marx Engels account of marriage, right, the sort of historical materialist account they give of the role or rise of marriage and the transition from feudalism to capitalism, she's not refuting that, right? She wants to say that there's just more dimensions to it that give a fuller and better picture of, of what primitive accumulation really was that process and like the consequences of it. Right. So I think what's enclosed is not just the womb. It's like the, the removal in a sense of the womb from (laughs) it's a removal of the womb. I don't know. Actually, I'm just thinking like a a removal of the womb from the public space to a, a like highly regulated and specific like private space? maybe there's like I don't commons know. of women right like a woman's commons of like midwifery knowledge that they are removed from and alienated from in some ways through mm-hmm. capital like I the, think that's like, it because yeah, okay. by the time you get to Freud right, it's an epistemic century and like Freud is telling women things about their bodies that they don't even know and he's wrong too and it's like how did that kind of like ignorance of your own how do you become alienated from your own body because you don't have a midwife anymore who's, like, teaching you this shit. You know, the problem is that we don't have a penis, and I'm envious about it. That's what it is. You're right. Yeah. Exactly. You wish you're, like, that, 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 that. <laughs> Solved it. it. <laughs> the kind of stupid shit that happens when it's men who are, like, giving clinical treatment, whether it's physical or therapeutic to, to women. The other thing that I'm just thinking now that we're kind of, like, free-spitting ideas, I guess we always are. Uh, always already. But the history of gynecology and obstetrics in the United States and black women being the like site of that scientific experimentations on plantations, too, is another like if I was going to put all these readings together on a syllabus, this is what I would do, because I think Federici's there's enough going on here that it's really generative to think her through other things, too. But like some of those accounts like like, to read her with like Dorothy Roberts and like Spillers and stuff. Yes. Right. And. And like Jennifer Morgan's Laboring Women, which yeah. I think we talked about before. I don't know if it was mentioned, like the title actually on this recording so far. But like, yeah, because some of those accounts, like I was mentioning. So I Jennifer Morgan's Laboring Women, which I guess if I were to talk about it, let me say it really quick. But she's looking at the American side of this and black women's reproduction being doubled in that they have to both do the field work. But they're also like reproducing the actual slave labor force, too, biologically. And though in that account, she only mentions abortions and midwives on one page, just one. And I was like, wow, she's doing a whole study on black women's labor and reproduction on the plantation. And abortions and herbal knowledge is only one page. Like, it's not on her radar enough. And like taking Federici's like, hey, look at this would enrich that. So, And I've seen other things that have happened, because that's a 2004 publication, too, so it's a little older. And there have been some things that have come out more recently that do kind of, like, work in the middle. And I've actually seen... I was looking today. There are, like, blog articles and things that have been... Uh, that cite both Federici and Morgan together. So there are people who are out here... Synthesizing? Like, on the yes. <laughs> yes, to be good Marxists. They <laughs> Love a good Marx joke. It was inevitable at some point. I mean, come on. Can I, can I 
raise a couple synthetic points oh about God, this text. <laughs> so, and this, I mean, picks up from the loaded question that I asked earlier with an even further loaded question. <laughs> um, and so that is like, so, you know, we were talking about it, perhaps uh, making fun of or something of the kind of one singular logic point. But within that one singular logic point, there are like a couple different formulations when I think she's trying to specify what that process actually looks like. And so one of them is page 17 at the end of the introduction when she says, the political lesson that we can learn from Caliban and the witch is that capitalism, I'm going to do some ellipses in here, capitalism is necessarily committed to racism and sexism. For capitalism must justify and mystify the contradictions built into its social relations, the promise of freedom versus the reality of widespread coercion, by den- etc., by denigrating the nature of those that it exploits. Women, colonial subjects, the descendants of African slaves, the immigrants displaced by globalization. So there's I wrote in parentheses their nature itself, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's kind of one point where I think she's trying to specify what that logic looks like. And that one is not particularly appealing to me. It sounds way overly functionalist for my ears, but we could perhaps talk about Mm. that. There's one other place where I think that really sticks out to me where she's doing this. And this is 63 um, on to 64. Primitive accumulation, then, was not simply an accumulation and concentration of exploitable workers and capital. It was also an accumulation of differences and divisions within the working class, whereby hierarchies built upon gender as well as race in square quotes, scare quotes, which we should maybe talk about, and age become constitutive of class rule in the formation of the modern proletariat. Now, one could read that second quote in a very functionalist method. And it's essentially just a slight specification of that earlier quote from page 17. But there's something about this notion of the accumulation of differences and divisions within the working class that I think is in a more Marxist perspective than perhaps we've been talking about uh, most of the podcast. Like that notion strikes me as more incisive or more kind of necessary for a more traditionally Marxist account. Although all of this, and like maybe this is something I, one of you alluded to it earlier, like a lot of what Wilderson calls the ruse of analogy is going on in this text and is going on in these explications of capitalist logics and all of that. Well, that was something I had thought to throw back to you earlier when James was talking about actual witch hunt versus sort of witch hunt as an allegory. Because you had said in prepping that you thought there was both both happening here, and we sort of like sidestepped that question. But I'm I th- think they're I'm both thinking- happening, but that's because she keeps. She's trying to use this Marxist language, which I get why she's doing that, because that's her project. But but it's not her project just for the sake of having a project, right? It's her project because a reason. I mean, like <laughs> I mean, right, but like she's trying to rehabilitate Marxist frameworks. Ooh, I don't analysis. know if I would say that. <laughs> like relative to what Will... Wilderson's like complete, he doesn't even, you know what I'm saying? Like, cause what she says that this, it was also an accumulation of differences and divisions within the working class. And I would say that's absolutely true. As long as we maintain that black people are not part of the working class and that 
to like put spillers in here, there was a complete flattening of all sorts of gendered and like, but this gets hard to hold up because like men are not actually reproducing. So there is some something right that like white masters know that like who to rape in order to produce children with or not. Right. But that being said, that being said though, there it like. Do you mean that as a kind of like knowledge that is not sort of captured by? I'm just like, I want to, like, I don't know if her, like if she's a Marxist and Mm -hmm. that's her project or not. Right. Because if it's, I don't know what holding on to this idea of accumulation of differences relative to a working class does for us. If we realize that, like not everybody who's caught up in these dynamics that she's trying to talk about are part of a working class proletariat, even in proto. Hmm. But that's getting into like a, like the political ontology versus which she doesn't do this either, but maybe she wants to get very granular and say that there were African indentured servants in the 17th century too. And so that the like race and square quotes might be this, I like is more material and historical than even the Afro pessimists in some sense that the idea of race was not always there in the beginning of this. And so even if you want to say capitalism's need to exploit labor is not the logic that drives it, it's actually like the dishonoring of slaves, but then race is not the lever of dishonorment. It emerges as one way to dishonor these people that is maybe par excellence. But I don't know if she means to get all into that, but I think we could do all that and maintain what she's saying, because what she's saying is absolutely right within that Marxist framework. As long as we apply this like race corrective to it in some way that we are not folding all workers just because I'm working on a plantation next to, you know, Scottish indentured laborers, like there's something very distinct. And I was thinking of this earlier in reading the thing for me that like bears this out a bit in like the historical archive is that in the colonies when white women have black children those children are not subject to birthright slavery like in this like part of sequitur ventrum the same way that african women Mm -hmm. are even though african women are having children that are mulattoes mixed white and black white women are having children that are mixed white and black but slavery is not a condition that is put on the children whose mother is white and so there's something in the white mother that is not at all about her like biological reproductive capabilities for a workforce at all and is about some kind of dishonorment, whether you want to call that race initially or not, I don't know. But there's something like you must be degraded in a bigger way than just like you're a worker. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting because uh, the question or the question that begs is whether that can be addressed or fails to be addressed under the auspices of the differences and divisions part of it or the working class part of it. Right. Like if, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's that's a good way to put it, right? Because if we use something other than the working class, right, there might be a noun there for which the broader point differences and divisions is speaking to, you know, uh, uh, the slave versus the worker in in Wilderson's term. But I do think she wants to draw that parallel, right? I don't like not to say that they're completely analogous, but that they tell the same story about the transition or they're 
to that's what like, she wants to do. I think. Yeah, yeah, right. that's what. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that she's right in noticing that, like, you can't tell this story without that, right? But I don't think, like, the it's just her methodology of like parallelism or something is not the way to go. Maybe a um, a Stuart Hall like articulation approach would work better here. Um, no, just go as go a as materialist all the way. <laughs> but there you go. Right, right, right. Like, um, the, I want to ask you this question, Em, because you had mentioned wages, and I was thinking about this, and I think it's an appropriate question to ask now in this in this part of our conversation. Oh, I'm so nervous. I was, I, and I'm trying to, I'm trying, I'm trying to think after Du Bois and thinking about the race stuff and thinking about like black people are not necessarily working, but like how do we? Okay, right. Yeah. When Du Bois talks about whiteness being the psychological wage, is maternity a psychological wage for women in the same way that whiteness emerges as a psychological wage in a race paradigm for the white working class? Because like the she talks about, I forget where I saw it. Like I'm now, it might be the same chapter where she does get into abortion, or maybe it's the colonial period stuff. But she's trying to not. Or maybe I'm just thinking of some of the critiques that come out of Jennifer Morgan, because mm-hmm. Jennifer Morgan wants to not romanticize black motherhood. Right. Well, I mean, there's spillers as well, women, right? Right. That there's or, plenty of black who don't love the baby that they birth because they don't like the circumstances that force that child upon them, right? And so this idea... Well, and well, and to go the spillers route, right, that like motherhood is maybe not even the best paradigm through which to understand that particular kind of physiological, um, you know, reproduction in broad, broad scare quotes or whatever. Yeah. So I don't know, again, and I don't know enough about the, like, the deep histories on this in European, like, ideas of maternity other than just like then like i'm just thinking of things that this text makes me think about and federici makes me about a lot that there was a like so in the in a medieval spain there was alongside witchcraft there was alumbradismo which was a like catholic mystical cult of women um that were like the enlightened ones alumbradas and the alumbrada cults of the 15th 16th centuries were focused around um, Mary's immaculate conception and like the myth of Mary's mother, St. Anne, being like sinless and St. Anne doing the work necessary to preserve herself in order for Mary to be sinless. And like there's this whole theology that like one doesn't even need men for salvation within this like St. Anne spin-off cult right and i think (laughs) there's something really interesting there again like if you were just like to do more applied work or like to keep thinking after federici like there's something going on with that that again is like uh, there's there's like maternity is another power that has a history to it you know and and like the like it's not always this natural given across all times and places the way a mother would demonstrate herself as a mother towards her child i guess and like there is a lot going on there that even maybe the accumulation of differences is like maternity is part of that yeah accumulation on one side and then like on the, the the african slave side maternity doesn't calculate anywhere whether women want to be maternal or even if they don't want to, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. just the category doesn't even stick on that side. I think it's an interesting question too. And maybe this is a place where you could read Du Bois and Federici in tension with one another kind of productively. Right. Because she's thinking about the 
the like process of like enslavement scare quotes abound that the wage uh, solidified for women vis-a-vis their reproductive function, right? That like what happened in the transition from feudalism to capitalism is the introduction of a wage, uh, a, a very specific wage that was a remuner- remuneration for very specific kinds of labor power, not reproductive labor power, created this relationship of dependency between women and their husbands, right? So like that her way of sort of thinking about the wage historically materially might, I don't, I don't know how you would read it by Du Bois. I think it's a really, really good question. Cause she Um, does, she does mention too about men being the ones who kind of continue to accrue the wage of children once the full, like the, the separate spaces or, you know, like the separate, yeah. like the, once that settles in, like in a bourgeois era, there are all these, like, I forget um, where she's citing some of these accounts of travelers who are talking about Germans in the 18th century who have like 15 children. Yeah. And it's like, cause these men, the men get a social value from having all those children where the women are not getting paid any wages for that labor, but they are getting this like, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world kind of Victorian bourgeois sentimental bullshit. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, like it's supposed to satisfy them. Yeah. You know, like you are doing something important. You get the satisfaction of like, you're more important to the, the emergence of liberal citizenship than right. men. Cause you get to like be the first one who works on your children in the house. Like that, that kind of rhetoric, whether that's ideological and it's just productive on the one side or whether women actually start to perform it, hegemonically right and like so oh, i'm gonna, fucking I'm, liberal <laughs> do we like is motherhood is motherhood because like the the next point on 64 where Federici's saying on the contrary capital so we shouldn't think that capitalism has like liberated the worker in any way which is a trope that is out there right but that capitalism has created more insidious or more brutal and insidious forms of enslavement which that word is rough there but there is i don't if capitalism has like even diluted women into the idea that they're supposed to like their children in some way, like that's an interesting provocative. Well, not just like their children, that their entire self worth and their contribution to society is tied up in the, in the, in the sort of like physiological, biopolitical, like in a way that you should not life of their children about, like to abort them is like some moral failing on yeah. your part, right? Like you should immediately just like be like pl- pleased with the fact that you've conceived a child, that kind of sentimentalism. Cause you see that production happening right now where we have concurrent headlines today in the United States that run stories about the population, not pr- the American women are not having as many children. And then you got to bury the lead where it's like, they're actually referring to American white women. Yeah. Other demographics in this country are not having any problems reproducing, but like the headline is that Americans aren't reproducing fast enough. And then you also have abortion laws becoming as, as fascist as they ever could have been before Roe v. Wade, right after Roe v. Wade in this country. And that's, white fears again like it's but there's something well not to mention like who has access to reproductive technology when those you know when the naturalness fails yeah 
it's just I don't know. There, I again, I don't like if I was just going to teach this out, you know. I, I would love to frame it in several ways, but like to put it on the table as like, what does this make you think about our current conversations around reproductive justice? Because yeah. there, even, I was look. There's like a collective called Witch W I T C H mm-hmm. that was like a radical feminist collective from the 60s and 70s, yep. and they've kind of reemerged in you know different parts of late after Trump's election. Have you watched and, any videos of of like the protests they stage at Wall Street and stuff? No, I didn't see those, but I've seen pictures. They're very, very good. They're dope. Yeah. They hexed. <laughs> I'm so here for it. We have gone on many tangents. Yes, we have. Is John with us? <laughs> John. <laughs> Hello, John. Wait, is he? Yeah, like I have, I Uh, have like an additional follow up to this. What would it mean to read Du Bois and to Federici? But we don't have we don't have to go there because it's going to make similar points to what I've already made today. You could make more points always. Okay, so (laughs) I don't know about that. Um, So, like, I think the way that I would frame it is that I would maybe specify it that for Du Bois, right? So the psychological wage accrues to whites so as to uh, perpetuate anti-blackness, right? right? Like that's one way to frame it. And so the maternal wage is a maternal wage that accrues to white women so as to get them on the same team to oppress black people or black women more specifically. But also also to reproduce a very specific labor force. Yeah. But in both but, cases, but, but, too, it's it's also to, to to demystify the very fact that these people themselves are also being alienated from their own labor production. Right. Exactly. It, so it's, it's like that you know, double. Pers- yeah. So like then this then the like follow up to, to that like translation or like analogy is that this is against the backdrop of Federici like putting so much emphasis and in some ways this is one thing we've de-emphasized a little bit in this conversation which I'm totally fine with but that she's like very specifically interested in processes like the separation of production and reproduction the kind of spatial privatization of this notion of separate spheres a division of labor that is gendered but also an international division of labor that's um that is uh that is developed in various ways through the processes she's describing so that it is it is against that backdrop that there is like this buying off or co-optation so as as both of you were pointing out to mystify these broader um these kind of these these broader like forces of oppression or violence domination or whatever and i think that it's that those kinds of moves that she hasn't mind when she talks about like there is this singular logic or she talks about how there are these differences and divisions that are established so as to buttress capital where she talks about she gives kind of this like functional definition of the relationship between capitalism and racism and patriarchy so like i was just trying to like kind of trace the analogies and ways you two were thinking like back to how does that work within her broader kind Mm -hmm. of theoretical apparatus and you so you think it's overly functional I think at points, like I, 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 and this, and this is where you know, a place that we've come too many times. I think that her broad theoretical point is overly functional, mm-hmm. but that some of the textures within the account itself 
like unwrite the over functionalism of the broader theoretical mm-hmm. point that she is making at other points. I was going to ask you, do you think it matters that, that it's maybe like too, what was the word you just used? I'm sorry. Right. Functionalist. Is it too, is that a problem? Like, you know what I mean? Like is, cause isn't there some like post-structuralism and post-modernism killed the Marxist revolution on some hand because everybody got so nuanced with everything that like, I don't know who to go think who's my enemy anymore. And I know like there's some, you know, is there a, is she trying to do something else where like by necessarily being functionalist, she's like it, it plays to her polemics or something. Yes. There's something about, I'm tired again, like I was saying earlier, I'm tired of needing to keep nickel and diming my citations to prove capitalism is a violent, destructive force, right? Like, (laughs) There are some things at this point now, like if you wanted to say, based on the last 500 years of human history, we're going to like do emergent uh, a priori kind of like, you know, you're doing a kind of a, it is a structuralist account. I'm, I'm I'm sensitive to it, I guess, because Afro pessimism is one too, and one could. Oh, I would disagree with that. Okay, well, wait. Do you think structuralist accounts are functionalist? No. Okay. (laughs) I I don't think those are. I don't think. I think those usually go together, but do not. Not necessarily. Right. Right. I guess if your structures are dynamic enough, then their functions can be. <laughs> this is an absurd <laughs> conversation, by the way. I fucking love it. Sorry for the <laughs> explicit. Do what, this, what do we know about? I mean, is Federici? She's not a post-structuralist at all, right? She's a Marxist feminist, like a wages for housework Marxist feminist. Yeah. Did you, Did any of you see that documentary that came out last year? It was about democracy. Um, like I think it was called "What Is Democracy?" and Federici was one of the interview subjects, and also Wendy Brown. Have, yeah. you, have you heard of this? No. And uh, so the scenes with Federici are really interesting. She's being interviewed, like in Florence in a museum, and sort of talking in broad strokes about, like, I don't, I don't know about the promise of democracy in the context of all the shit we're talking about, right? This like not necessarily inevitable, but sort of historical material confluence of violence and the capitalist regime globally. And she's sort of like a bit pessimistic about, about the promise of democracy, but it's like, it's, it's interesting to, to like watch her talk about those questions with the explicit, explicit purpose of um, making it palatable to a lay audience. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think she's less, of a Marxist maybe than like her, the, the book would suggest. I'm not sure. You guys should watch it and we can talk about it. I'll check it out. It's not a particularly like amazing, uh, what's it called? <laughs> Documentary, but her, her scenes are, are kind of interesting when you've read her stuff. That was a weird aside. <laughs> um, do we um, do we want to end here with kind of the 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 many lines of flight unpursued or keep going? 
I don't have uh, the only other thing I have is kind of a half joke, but uh, <laughs> oh, good! I have a half joke too. So this is two, a half joke. Two on. halves make the whole. <laughs> There's like on page seventy-seven. She does just like a quick little mention about like food and hunger shortages and how diets transitioned from having like lots of meat to being majority carbs and so like oh her side like like, not saying anything about diets but (laughs) no but i was like she's making like an argument for a low carb diet as like like our high carbs are a function of capitalist economies or something i was like she don't even like i don't know again like there's so many things in this text that i don't real i don't think that's what she was doing but it's like you could just jump in here and you can make a whole like Marxist feminist case for your, your like Atkins diet or something. I think <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so my <laughs> joke was going to be that is a good one. Um, along the lines of like, I'm this is not an original point to me. Like, there's a Boston Review essay we can link to that like engages Federici on this count. But you know, there's another there's another version of this podcast where we spend like a half hour examining and like thinking through the implications via Federici of why Trump wants to call the investigation against him a witch hunt oh. so badly. Yeah. Mm. And I'm I'm just gonna leave it there. Like that is oh. that like that's a that's See, though, there's, oh, that's riveting, though, because there is something in the imaginary about witch hunts that are, that, like, that, it lingers in our memory, right? Like, in a, in a really impressed way. Yeah. There we go. But it, it's also interesting, now I'm, now I'm down that route fully, but, like, it sort of, <laughs> it sort of rehabilitates the witch in a way, if you are a, a, sympathetic to his claim. Right. But it, that that is definitely not a real witch. That's right, right, right. a magic witch. That's right. definitely like none of the like witches that <laughs> the three of us on this podcast no, would want to. But like it, you could in a way that it like to use the figure of the witch as, as Federici like has allowed us to think of it. And then like to see Trump try to put him, Trump is literally the negate, like, the witches are the negation of everything that Trump embodies in some way. Yes. And for him to try to use that very particular, there's some, there's an irony there that uh, I, he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't intend it. Obviously I don't think, but it's like, cause I'm sure he's not read Federici. Right. Oh, are you? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you son of a bitch. You are the last person in the world who could take on the mantle of witches. If witches are the like, the custodians of women's reproductive power and the mysteries of yeah. all that. Like, get yeah. out of here, man. But in this way, that it's like a meta witch hunt where, like, he is even killing the, like, the original witches that were witch hunted, right? So as to let us point out, like, accumulate capital, right, in the form of, like, the Trump tax cuts to, uh, you know, to oppress people of color broadly written. Well, right. So to, to sort of, like, of ways. facilitate so like a, the accumulation of difference at its, like, yeah. highest peak, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's mm-hmm. like it is totally reversed the witch hunt, right? So now the we don't, we don't, you know, we don't fight against a witch hunt. Not to say that, like, Mueller or whoever the fuck is, like, the team I want to be on either, but, no. like, 
to, but it like reverses the witch hunt was originally, as Federici tells it, right? That is designed uh, to accumulate capital and accumulate differences and divisions um, and so on and so forth. And now it is like the witch hunt has taken on the exact opposite meaning where, you know, so... That is these. Like I said, these are the things that my mind was going to at one point today. There, there's something in the Trump era, it seems, and like it's not Trump or his the era that we're living in, like epistemologically, that all terms seem to be like inverted on their head. It's very 1984-ish in a way that, like, it's not surprising to me, actually, that, like... That's not not what I wrote my dissertation about. (laughs) 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 What a world. Well, friends, I I don't... Let me see. I'm checking my notes here. I don't think I have anything else, really. I think that's... I think we're good. I appreciate a good provoke, like a provocation in a way. And that, like, she wasn't being provocative per se, but, like, it made me think a lot about other connections, right? And, like, that's a, that's a good work. Yeah. I think, I agree, although I also think she is trying to be provocative. Yeah. And I also think the, the question we've danced around the whole time that we never really answered about, I mean, James, you said, right, that, like, Oh, she's doing the Marxist thing because because that's her project, right? Like dancing around the question of why why do this through Marx? Why tell this history through Marx is I think part of the provocation, right? That there's like a story to be told about primitive accumulation that isn't captured in Marxist analysis that's not for the sake of Marx's analysis itself, but for the sake of understanding our predicament, right? Under capitalism, understanding violence, understanding domination in, in a capitalist, in a global capitalist order, right? That like you, you got to look at it this way to get a purview on what's happening. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And like, like I think we were saying all throughout, like all those other things that we were saying to read alongside or in tension with or like in generative tension with is it, none of it would necessarily like neg- like Negate. work against her. All right. You know what I mean? Like it would just it would enhance it in ways and like add to the conversation. So I like the provocation, I guess, is that or what's useful, I guess, about her provocation is that it it is still able, I think, to be put in the conversation even with like we're re- we're critiquing her through some of the Afro pessimist publications that have come out in the twenty teens, right? Right. And this was published in two thousand four, and I think it it's a little dated, but it it shows its like it it shows its age pretty well. Like it holds up well enough that I think it would be an interesting way to lay out maybe primitive accumulation if you were going to have to teach that to students like that chapter (laughs) it's easy to read like it's easy it's readable it's not overly complex i don't think i think her argument's easy enough to follow you know because she's kind of being historicist about it so there's like a timeline (laughs) that helps organize this stuff yeah i mean i think we're still at our original question though right like is it a like is is the argument restricted to the historical timeline that she's describing, or does it transcend, or is the historical timeline the kind of like example of the broader sort of theoretical, um, what do you call it? In not interference. Ooh, words are fun. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
it's a way to describe a kind of argument you can make. Whatever. You get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think, like, she's... Intervention? Like, Intervention, thank you. She's doing that. It's, like, like you know, for Braudel, civilization and capitalism is, like, the example of this style of... I'm looking it up now. It's part of the French Annal School, where you're making these historic... These historicist arguments about capitalism. But, like... I don't know enough about it, but like, like I don't know if eno- I don't know enough about Braudel per se. But like, she's following that model. So whatever, however useful that is for understand, like why the Annal School felt like this was the kind of like historical narrative intervention that was necessary to uh, explain capitalist structuring. Right. I'm curious about it now. I'm like my own curiosity's peaked, but we've already done an entire episode, so I need to. Prove it. On my own. <laughs> <laughs> Let me research it my own time here, but um, it's yeah. also a precursor of world systems theory. So huh. I, that kind of stuff is like there's a use in what she's doing. If like I think you read her in that genre of like, how do you make these arguments that are 800 years and the entire globe is involved in it? Yeah. Um, there's the book Lisa Loeb's um, Intimacies of the Yes uh, uh, five I, con- Intimacies con- of the Five Continents, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I Intimacies, Intimacies of the Four Continents. Excuse me. I don't know when that was published. I'm trying to see. I'm, I'm, oh, or 15, 2015. There's an article that's oh nine or something. Mm. All right. So. All right. I think this has been a very long podcast, <laughs> much like the scope of Federici's analysis. Yeah. It has spanned continents. I'm trying to, to mimetically give you a feel for the, like, the problem, the scale of the problem. Oh, God. <laughs> Let's not do that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you, listeners, those of you that are still around. Indeed. And uh, we'll have another episode at some point. Enjoy James's two most recent episodes, his epistemic unruinesses. Yes, check those out. Um, Puerto Rico and the Enrique Renuncia um, protest, which also really dovetails nicely with the carnival episode, especially when you consider that the Puerto Rican protest was using uh, twerk dancing and you know perreo dancing in the street as a form of protest that's like what that whole carnival complex um critical theory is all about so thinking about choreography and street demonstrations as like always already practicing for the revolution yeah check that out folks epistemic unruliness right. at its peak <laughs> <laughs> love it Double, double, toil and treble. Oh, so Fire, burn and cauldron, bubble. <laughs> With a baboon's blood. Mm. So witchy. What is this Africanist imaginary there? Let me, there's something else. That, okay, real quick. and we're Oh, all my like, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, have to go. <laughs> she uses the Caliban thing as a symbol of the proletariat, but, like, so many other people have used Caliban as a symbol of, like, enslaved Africans in the Caribbean. And it's like, right. again, I think, I think that's what she's But that slippage is like, with, right? it can't be both. Caliban can't both be proletariat and slaves, like, for everything that we've said today. It's yeah. either one or the other. Mm. Ooh, this is a whole other thing. 
All right. Okay, so I guess let's leave it. need to do and raise <laughs> Caliban treason. That's another <laughs> There you go. All right, all right. Let's leave it then. Bye, listeners. Bye, Emily. Bye, James. Bye. Bye. Have an always already day. Thank you for joining us once again on the Always Already podcast, which is created by B. Lee Altman, Rachel Brown, Siddhisar, James Palani Jr., Emily Crandall, and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us text you'd like to discuss, advice, questions to answer, and dreams to analyze to alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at alwaysreadyon, like us on Facebook, and uh, tell your friends about the podcast. We are also appreciative of our patrons over at patreon.com slash podcast. If you noticed it better sound quality than usual, it's because James Padalini Jr. has a new microphone thanks to our patrons. That makes it a good time to shout out the patrons and the Always Already Circle of Trust. We'd like to thank David, Stephanie, Laura, Leonte, Roddy, Diane, Ariel, Kristen, Catherine, and Matthew. In the front of the podcast category, we'd like to thank Aujawe, Natalie, Ian, Thomas, Theory Talk, and Rachel. We also appreciate Guava, who has not yet claimed a reward. As a reminder, if you are a patron, you get to jump to the top of the queue in terms of your episode that you suggest for the text you'd like to discuss um, actually happening. So you, that's a way that you can do that. Uh, you can support us at patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you to friend of the show, Bad Infinity, for their song Post Digital, which you heard at the beginning. And thank you, of course, always already, thank you to B, whose cover of Landslide you are listening to right now. Until next time, have an always already day.